0: You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious.
1: This podcast coming to your ears is coming from a computer.
0: Even if you download it to your phone or streaming it in the car.
1: Wherever and however you're listening, it's coming to you from a computer.
0: The same goes for anything you do online. Watch a video, send an email, play a game, snap a chat, and on and on.
1: But have you ever stopped to think about how these things travel from one computer to another?
0: We're going to find out right now. Keep listening.
1: You are listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Molly Bloom, and my co hosts today are Ravi Compradith and Samuel Yoon from Seattle. Welcome.
0: Thanks for having us. Hi, Molly.
1: So, how do you use the internet on a typical day? How about you, Sam?
0: Well, I mean, most of my time is spent in school. So, like, we have our own personal computers, and we use our computers to, whether it's research or, you know, find different facts or even use something we call Google Docs. It's like an online Word document. That's usually how I spend most of my time online at school. But when at home, I like to play a lot of different video games online with my friends. So that's usually how I spend
1: most of my time. Excellent. And how about you, Ravi? Uh,
0: The same goes for me. And when I am at home, I usually like to watch uh, videos on YouTube or play online games with my friends as well.
1: So before we started taping this show, had you thought a lot about how the Internet actually works and gets to your computer or your phone? How about you, Ravi? Ravi?
0: Uh, for me, I had always like set up my own internet, whether it be connected my computer to the router in my house. But I had never really thought about how it gets to individual houses or anywhere across the world. So I think that's one thing I'm interested to learn about on today's show.
1: And I mean, at this point, can you even imagine life without the internet?
0: Not really. It's 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 really hard to think about and imagine how we we would communicate with people around the world without the internet. Yeah, and especially since we grew up in a time where the farthest back we can remember the internet was still there.
1: Right. Do you ever like ask your parents like what was it like before the internet?
0: I think like the biggest thing is like when we were doing research for like papers and stuff you know we have the internet we have Google but you know they had to like go through books and go to the library and like find the information through like the books instead of just the internet. Yeah one thing that definitely shocks me about before the internet was here my dad said people actually used to talk to each other not on their phones so that's a Yeah, they actually had to see each other in person. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Today's episode was inspired by this question sent to us over the internet, of course, by Jack.
0: My name is Jack Butler, and I live in Belfast, Northern Ireland. My question is, how does internet flow around the world?
1: This is a fascinating question and one that I think a lot of us take for granted. I mean, I use the Internet all the time and had never really stopped to think about what exactly it is or how I access all these files and all this information. So when I send an email to Ravi in Seattle, how does it get there? Or when I watch a video someone posted in the U.K., how does it travel to the screen of my phone?
0: It's all about cables. Journalist Andrew Blum traced the path of the Internet to his home in New York.
2: And I wrote a book called Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet, where I went to visit the physical infrastructure of the Internet. Andrew first got interested in the topic because
0: of a squirrel. That's
2: nuts. When my internet at home broke uh, and the cable guy came to fix it and he followed the wire from the clump behind my couch out to the back of my building uh, and then uh, saw a squirrel chewing on the cable and said, "Um, that's your problem. A squirrel is chewing on your internet. And I realized that if a squirrel could chew on that piece of the internet in my backyard, um, there had to be other pieces of the internet that squirrels could chew on.
0: Squirrels. It always comes down to squirrels. So he traced the path of the wire from his home in Brooklyn to see where it would take him. The first place it goes is a manhole on the corner. From there, it goes to the cable company office just outside the city.
1: And then from there, it goes to a big building located at 60 Hudson Street in Manhattan.
0: More about this address in a minute. For now, just know that this is what's called an exchange point. That's where the cables that come from all different internet companies physically connect to one another.
1: And this has to happen in order for you to access files stored by all those other companies.
0: So let's say you want to watch a movie from Netflix or look something up on Google.
1: Cables from those companies,
0: like Netflix and Google,
1: have to physically connect somewhere down the line to the cable that's connected to your home or office or school or library or wherever you're accessing the internet.
2: And those connections happen at exchange points. One of the most important internet exchange points and one of my favorites is 60 Hudson Street in lower Manhattan. Uh, And that was originally the Western Union building, Western Union being the telegraph company. Um, But over the last 15 years or so, it's become one of about probably the top 10 places in the world where more networks of the internet physically connect to each other than anywhere else. Uh, it looks like a regular office building from the 1930s, uh, kind of a Superman sort of look to it. But inside are small offices that are out of, made out of, of metal cages. You can kind of peer into them. And inside of them are racks and racks of these telecommunications equipment that are sort of like the, your home Wi-Fi router, uh, but on a, on a kind of industrial scale. And it's these machines that transfer uh, the data from one network to another that kind of act as the traffic cops.
1: Not all of us live near huge hubs like sixty Hudson, but at some point, our internet goes through a place like it.
2: And so, if you live in a in a small town, there is most likely a kind of um a small old telephone building um, that probably has a you know a bell symbol on the lawn in front. And that's almost always the place where the network connection goes from your neighborhood to a more regional network, and then from the regional network to a big city like Chicago or Denver or Miami, and from there, next to the big international networks.
0: The cables eventually make it back to the place where data are stored. A movie, an email, a game. All that information is stored on a server
2: might be a, a server that the hard drive in it that holds web pages that might be the size of a pizza box or it might be a building as you know big as a warehouse or a factory that holds you know literally millions of these servers that store all of the things we see on our screens, all the movies and pictures and news articles.
1: So the data is stored in servers that take up actual physical space in a place called a data center.
2: The most famous of them, uh, probably the ones owned by Facebook and Google, they do look like giant warehouses. Uh, They can be a quarter mile long. And then inside, they're often dark and cold. They need to be kept cold to keep the equipment working properly um, and filled with sort of blinking lights everywhere. You know, when you try to think about just the amount of data that's stored on on your phone or on your laptop, um, and then you stack that up, and then you begin to make rows and rows of it like a library, and have an entire building that you, you can—I mean—begin to grasp. And I, I never get really able to fully grasp uh, how much data is actually stored in each of these buildings. And then remember that it's not just one of these buildings, but maybe two or three in a single location, and then maybe a dozen different locations around the world.
1: So data is stored on servers, and those servers are physically wired to us through a series of cables. But what if we want to watch a video from France or read a website from Japan or send an email to someone in Senegal?
0: It's still about the cables, a network of cables. They run all the way from you to France or Japan or Senegal, even with the ocean in the way. The cables just go underwater.
1: Stop and think about that for a moment. There are cables carrying the Internet running all the way across oceans. That's a lot of cable. Nicole Staroselsky is a professor at NYU, and she studies these undersea cables.
3: The network travels under every ocean all around the world, and these are really small cables. They're about the size of a garden hose. Today, they carry almost 100 percent of all digital communications that run between continents underneath the ocean.
0: And how do these cables get to the bottom of the ocean?
3: Scuba divers? No. Robots? Nope. Highly trained cable-carrying squids that work for fish?
0: That would be cool, but still very no. They drop them off the back of a boat
3: as the boat crosses the ocean. They have very precise equipment to gauge how fast the boat is going, and so they'll make sure that enough cable is let out uh, at the right speed, so that way it will exactly line the seafloor. So if there's a mountain on the undersea floor, then the cable will go right over that mountain. It won't droop between mountains. It'll stay on the very bottom of the floor.
1: And this is not a new phenomenon. There have been underwater cables going across the bottom of the ocean since the mid-1800s when telegraphs came into use.
3: That was the -the state-of-the-art communication because you could communicate instantly or near instantly between two points on different sides of the ocean that before would have taken weeks the same goes for cables
1: across the land. Again, here's Andrew Blum.
2: The internet is a new technology, but the paths that it travels are almost always very old. Either along, um, you know, certainly old telephone routes, but before that, even old railroad routes or old, you know, horse and buggy routes. The the paths that connect us have been there for a very long time. The technology that carries our communications just keeps getting updated.
0: There are now about 500,000 miles of undersea cables that carry our digital communication. And new ones are being laid every year because we keep sending more and more data. Being out in the open sea isn't easy. These undersea cables get damaged over time.
1: But contrary to popular belief, it's not because sharks think they'd make good snacks. It's us, humans, and we do more damage than you might think.
3: Once every three days, a cable is cut or damaged. Most of the time, it's by a trawling ship, a fishing ship, or somebody just tosses an anchor off their boat and accidentally severs a cable line. Far more than any other disruption, this is the biggest problem for our global internet infrastructure, our people on boats.
1: When cables break and need repair, they're brought back up to the surface, repairs are made, then they're dropped back in the water.
0: My phone isn't connected to any cables. Isn't that data just beamed to my phone from a satellite?
3: You think it's wireless, right? Because it's, you know, you're walking around, you're not plugged in. So why would you think that this is a cable technology? Satellites are used for GPS and some other communication, but the
1: info coming to and from your phone is traveling mostly through cables, at least until the last leg of its journey.
3: It's only usually that first hop uh, that is wireless. So if I'm on my phone it's going to go to a cell tower first. That's not going to bounce between cell towers all the way across the country. It's going to go down to a cable network most often uh, and then come back up to a cell tower and beam to its endpoint.
1: So cables carry our data across the country and across the ocean. But how exactly do they do it? We're going to tackle that question in just a second. But first, I have another mystery for you. It's time for the mystery sound. mystery sound. And this one might be easier for those of you over the age of, say, 20. Here it is. Any guesses? Uh, I'd like to
0: say it sounds like something coming from an old computer or a pager. Mm-hmm. Um, when I hear that sound, I think of like dial-up internet.
1: Mm. Was that was Sam? Yes. Sam. Excellent guess. We're going to be back with the answer later in the show. Did you know that we have a Brains On fan club? It's true, we do. If you're already in our totally free fan club, you'll know that you get emails with extra activities and resources to go along with our episodes. But we have a new twist. If you provide us with your mailing address, you'll get actual physical mail with some fun surprises. Our next mailing is going to go out in November, so if you want to get it, make sure you sign up for the fan club by October 31st. Sign up at BrainsOn.org slash fan club. And if you're already a part of the fan club and want to make sure you get those mailings, you can go to that same site, BrainsOn.org slash fan club, and give us your mailing address. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you have a mystery sound you'd like to share with us? A question you want answered on the show? Or maybe you want to send us a drawing or a high five?
1: You can send your data through a vast network of cables by heading to BrainsOn.org slash contact.
0: Or you can send us physical mail, no cables required.
1: Our address is on our website,
0: BrainsOn.org.
1: We get so many smart questions from our listeners every day, like this one.
4: Hi, my name is Saria
0: Irving. I come from Toronto, Canada. And my question is, is it
4: true that makeup has bugs in it?
1: We'll be back with the answer during our moment of um at the end of the show, and we'll read the most recent group of names to be added to the Brains Honor Roll. So keep listening. You're listening to Brains On.
0: I'm Ravi Kompadith. I'm Samuel Yoon.
1: And I'm Molly Bloom. Today's episode is about how the internet flows around the world.
0: In a word, cables. Lots and lots and lots of cables.
1: But what is actually going through those cables?
0: In order to understand, we need to know a little bit about binary code.
1: We have an interview with someone, I mean, some with an intimate knowledge of the subject.
5: Welcome back to Under the Hood, the show where we interview important machines about their jobs. I'm your host, Lee Appleton. Joining me today is a computer... Thanks for being here with me today, computer.
6: I'm with you every day.
5: Oh, that's a little...
6: Creepy, yes. Answer complete.
5: I haven't even asked...
6: Zeros and ones is the answer.
5: Okay, I know you're receiving data almost as fast as the speed of light, but can we slow down just a tad? This is an interview. Let's just have a conversation.
6: Apologies, human.
5: Please, call me...
6: Lee, yes, I know.
5: <clears throat> so... What is binary code?
6: Binary code is zeros and ones. Zero means off and one means on. My processor, or brain as you humans might think of it, takes this binary code and executes it.
5: What does that mean? How do you execute zeros and ones?
6: My processor is made up of billions of transistors. These transistors have two states, off or on, zero or one. All the complex things we computers do start with these basic on or off commands. They build on each other, and eventually, with enough on and off commands, you can create the huge range of things we computers do.
5: But I've seen code, and it's not just zeros and ones. It has words that I can understand, like if and then.
6: Your processor, um, brain, would have trouble writing in the zeros and ones that I need. So the code written by computer programmers is converted by translator into binary code. In the early days, code was written in zeros and ones, but things have become much more complicated. Nowadays, most conversion into binary code is done by computers. All information stored by computers is in binary code, even movies.
5: Wow. So, text messages?
6: Binary code.
5: Using you to type a book report?
6: Binary code.
5: Podcasts?
6: Yes, binary code. Look, I'm going to have to cut you off here. I have to get back to work crunching some numbers. Well. To be exact, I have to crunch two numbers, but the answer to your questions about how I process anything will most certainly be binary code, zeros and ones.
5: Before you go, one last thing. Can I check my email on you, real quick?
6: Fine. Just type on my face. Make it quick.
1: So we've got the basics of binary down. We're going to find out how that code travels through the network of cables spanning the globe in a moment. But first, let's go back to that mystery sound. Let's hear it again. <coughs> Any new guesses?
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with my original
4: guess, Xavier.
1: So you both thought it had to do with computers, and Sam thought dial-up internet. Here's the answer.
4: That was the sound that computers used to make when connecting to the internet. Uh, hey, I'm Neil Palmerlow. I'm a software engineer at LinkedIn. So Sam, you were 100% correct. How did you know that sound? <laughs> um, so usually online,
0: when someone complains that their internet is super slow, they like say, my internet is just as fast as dial-up, and then they like play the sound of the like dial of internet
1: so you've never actually heard it in use but you've heard people use it as like a reference yeah 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 so you guys are lucky that you've never had to hear it before you get online (laughs) neil first got the internet at his house in 1998 when he was seven years old back then every time you wanted to go online you had to sit through that sound
4: When we all first started wanting to get connected to the internet, uh, we had to find some way to get everybody's computers connected using whatever technologies we already had. Uh, And what did we have? Well, uh, it turns out, and this was especially true before cell phones, that just about every home already had a dedicated phone line for the shared house phone. So obviously these phone lines were never meant for connecting to the internet, right? Uh, So we did this clever thing where we would connect computers uh, to to these phone lines. And the computers would actually make a phone call and talk to each other using computer sounds. And that's exactly what you're hearing.
1: Today, the cables carrying the internet are mostly fiber optic cables. These phone lines were made of copper, and going online back then took a lot of patience.
4: Yeah, and dial-up was notoriously slow. That was one of the big problems with it. It's, it's actually thousands of times slower than what we have now.
1: For those of us old enough to remember, we used to hear this sound all the time. Now, it's practically extinct. Neil missed this sound, and since he's someone who's been making websites since middle school, he made a website.
4: You know, that recording, uh, that recording of the sound is actually a real recording of my computer connecting to dial-up. I I don't know exactly why I recorded it, but I just felt like someday it would be cool to have. uh, And then I decided to share it with the world with dialupsound.com.
1: So if you go to dialupsound.com, you can experience what it was like to sign on to the Internet in the mid to late 90s. A little bit of time travel. (laughs) So we've made quite a leap from copper wires to state-of-the-art fiber optic cables. To
0: help us understand how exactly these cables carry movies, emails, games, and everything else that makes up the internet, we talked to Rajiv Ram. He's an electrical engineer at MIT. We have a couple questions here. So the first one off is, what are fiber optic cables made of?
7: So fiber optic cables are are really threads of glass. So they're made of uh, just like the kind of glass that you see in your window. They're made of silicon and oxi- oxygen, but they're incredibly pure glass. Um, that's what makes them so transparent that you could send signals uh, hundreds of miles with getting with almost no loss of light. I also have another question. The question is, how do they carry the internet to us? Usually, optical fibers basically they, so they carry light. Um, so light basically is trapped inside that optical fiber. It Basically, goes for example from Google's data center, and it travels all the way to the to your house uh, as light. And that light basically comes as pulses, and those pulses represent digital information. They represent ones and zeros. And those ones and zeros, um, a string of ones and zeros might represent a letter in the alphabet. A string of ones and zeros uh, might, remem- might, might represent how bright a pixel is on on your television screen. And so, in that way, they can basically transmit um, emails. They can transmit uh, movies, pictures. If you kind of imagine looking at your television set. Um, so, if you get close to your TV set, you can see that that image is basically split up into lots of individual pixels. And every little pixel basically is made up of sub pixels that are red, green, and blue, and what the the information that ha- in order to transmit that image onto your television screen, you basically need information your television needs to know how bright to turn the red, how bright to turn the green, and how bright to turn the blue and so there are pulses usually uh i think seven to eight pulses of of data basically come. And they basically tell the television set how bright to make the red. And the next seven pulses come and tell the television how bright to make the green. And how, the next seven tell it how bright to make the blue. And then it goes and it does that for every pixel on your television set. And it's doing that so fast that your eye basically can't tell that the image, that that picture is basically being drawn pixel by pixel.
0: And I'm sure a lot of data has to transfer.
7: That's right. It's a, it's a huge amount of data that's basically coming out. So one of the nice things about using optical fiber is that you can send light of different colors down the same thread of optical fiber and so each of those colors of light can carry its own independent stream of information so one optical fiber basically leaving a data center might carry a trillion bits per second of information coming out of that that is that is super cool you can imagine if you've got all these different colors of light traveling on the same glass thread, um, somewhere at Google and somewhere in your house, you might need something that looks like a prism that can separate those colors out so you can separate the channels. And there's exactly something like that inside the, the transmitter that's at Google and the receiver on your side to separate out all those data streams from each other.
0: Somewhat relatively recently, we jumped from copper wire to fiber optic. Do you think there's going to be a new state of transferring all this data by jumping from fiber optic to another thing
7: oh that's a that's a great question so um so you know when we jumped from copper wire to optical fiber we didn't we didn't we weren't sure actually in the 1970s people thought that it was either going to be optical fiber or some our microwave transmission that we're going to transmit all of our data wirelessly and you guys kind of know that we're basically doing both now right we've got uh, fiber optic cables coming to our house carrying our our YouTube and Netflix data to our computers and our television sets. And we've also got wireless transmission. We've got 3G and 4G coming directly to our smartphones. And so we're basically getting information every every which way we possibly can. And we, kind of, we expect, for sort of fundamental physics reasons, that there'll always be a wire, probably a, a glass wire, like a fiber optic coming to your house carrying data when it basically has to be trillions of bits of information. But the wireless signals will, pro- will also continue to get faster.
0: That is fascinating. appreciate your work.
7: No, I, I, I love the questions. These are, these are great
0: questions. <laughs> Even though the devices we might use be wireless, the internet travels along a series of cables across land and under the sea.
1: Data is stored on servers, sometimes in giant warehouses.
0: And somewhere along the line. The cable that comes from where the data is stored has to physically connect with the cable that connects with you. All this information travels at nearly the speed of light, thanks to fiber optic cables. Incredibly thin, clear, glass tubes, fiber optic cables transmit pulses of light so fast that we can't even see it with our own eyes.
1: That's it for this episode of Brains On.
0: This episode was produced by Mark Sanchez, Sandy Totten, and Molly Blue.
1: Many thanks to William Comperdith, Dennis Yoon, Cameron Wiley, Carol Zoll, Jim Gates, Tim Mining, Eric Ringham, and Becca Murray.
0: You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter.
1: We're at brains underscore on.
0: And we're on Facebook too.
1: Now, before we go, it's time for our moment of um...
8: um... 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 um,
6: um, um, um,
8: um, um. um, um is it true that makeup has bugs in it? Hi, my name is Marissa Plesha, and I'm a cosmetic chemist at Bell International Laboratories in Eagan, Minnesota. If you look at the back of lipsticks or sometimes blushes or eye makeup, anything that kind of has a little bit of a red tint, you may see the word carmine on the back of the ingredient list. Carmine is a pigment a natural colorant that comes from the carcaneal insect. And this insect has honestly been used for thousands and thousands of years in South America and kind of North America, especially Mexico, um, because it has a really, really nice red, deep color to it. This carcaneal insect contains about 17 to 24% of this chemical called carminic acid. Now, unfortunately, though, to get this carminic acid, you do have to crush up these dead bugs. But once you crush up these dead bugs, all the dead bug parts are filtered out. And so at the end, you're left with carmine. It is more or less a bug juice.
1: I'm never bugged to read this list of names. It's the Brain's Honor Roll. These are the amazing listeners who send us their ideas, questions, mystery sounds, drawings, and high fives. They keep this show going. Leia from Carrollton, Texas. Gavin from Picos, New Mexico. Madison from Allentown, New Hampshire. Tesneem from Los Angeles. Bella from Ulan, Texas. Lillian, Alita, Christian, and Carl from Duluth, Minnesota. Abraham from Palo Alto, California. Alia from Carpinteria, California. Jana from Schaumburg, Illinois. Aurora from Vestal, New York. Orion and Yair from New Jersey. Calvin from Columbus, Ohio. Maddie from Reno, Nevada. Tana, Torres, and Tessa from Bangkok, Thailand. Kyle and Abby from Taiwan. Grace from Toronto. Mia from Nottingham, England. Caitlin from Sudbury, Massachusetts, Elizabeth from Islip, New York, Reagan from Toronto, Theo from Clay, New York, Caleb from Chevy Chase, Maryland, Lena and Noah from Marengo, Iowa, John from Pinehurst, North Carolina, Spencer from Maryland, Claire and David from Malvern, Pennsylvania, Lena from Irvine, California, Eliana, Mayan, Amalia, and Shai from Atlanta, Mauro from Half Moon Bay, California, Oliver from Singapore, Amelia from Apopka, Florida, Leo and Koji from New York City, Amaya from Santiago, Chile, Anna from Chelmsford, Massachusetts, Lucy, Sam, and Pierce from Dayton, Ohio, Tanish from Atlanta, Naisha and Nishka from Toronto, Sula from San Francisco, Aliyah and Everly from Merriam, Kansas, Jayadin, Malachi, and Trey from Spring, Texas, Max from Los Angeles, Evie from Columbus, Georgia, Miriam from Santa Rosa, California, Olivia and Ava from Melbourne, Australia, Theo from Montclair, New Jersey, Amy and Lucy from Oxford, UK, Sydney, Fuller, and Hadley from Wildlight, Florida, Nora from Nashville, Sam from Cleveland, Tennessee, Soren and Ewan from Washington, D.C., Molly from Tacoma Park, Maryland, Amelia from Kerry, Kerry, New Zealand, Hunter and Zachary from Sutton, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Massachusetts, June, and Miles from Washington, D.C., Caitlin from Scottsdale, Arizona, Isla from Crandon, Wisconsin, and Reed from Prior Lake, Minnesota.
0: Thanks for listening.